Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I'm glad to have all of you here today for what I think will be a very interesting discussion about uh, both public policy and social science. As all of you know, the Senate is planning to debate uh, the Marriage Protection Amendment next week and presumably also to vote on it. Most people seem to think the uh, outcome of the vote is a foregone conclusion, uh, but they're still going to have the vote anyway. One of the arguments that has recurred in the debate over same-sex marriage, over gay marriage in the states and nationally, is the question of whether same-sex partnerships in Europe, especially in Scandinavia and Belgium, have weakened marriage there, or indeed have led to the death of marriage, as Stanley Kurtz has put it. Stanley Kurtz and Maggie Gallagher have uh, both discussed the evidence from Europe uh, and the negative light they believe it throws on the question of same-sex marriage. Robert Bork, Senator Santorum, Chairman Cornyn have all cited this evidence, so I think it is an important part of the debate. Now there's a new book that challenges the claim that same-sex partnerships have weakened marriage in Europe, and we're going to have that discussion today uh, on the eve of the Senate debate. We're delighted to have two leading students of the gay marriage debate with us to discuss one of the key social science issues in that debate. Um, I will introduce the author of the new book first and let him present his uh, arguments, and then I will introduce our second speaker. William Eskridge is the John A. Garver Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School. His primary legal academic interest has been statutory interpretation. He's the co-author of an innovative casebook on legislation. In the early 1990s, Professor Eskridge represented a gay couple suing for recognition of their same-sex marriage. Since then, he has published a casebook three monographs and dozens of law review articles articulating a legal and political framework for what he sees as the proper state treatment of sexual and gender minorities. The historical materials in his book, Gay Law, formed the basis for an amicus brief that he filed on behalf of the Cato Institute in the Lawrence v. Texas case and which was relied on by both the majority and the dissent in uh, the Supreme Court's analysis of Lawrence v. Texas, which struck down sodomy laws. He's here today to present some of the findings from his new book, Gay Marriage for Better or Worse, which he wrote with Darren Spadale, uh, and which is published by Oxford University Press, and copies of which are outside for uh, purchase. Professor Eskridge received his B.A. from Davidson College, a Master's in History from Harvard, and a J.D. from Yale. Please welcome Professor William Eskridge. it's always a real honor to be here at Cato, and uh, I can't say too much and too strongly what a great partnership uh, David and Cato and I had in the Lawrence case. It really was a synergistic partnership. And so Cato, uh, as is its want, uh, always wants to shed light on important issues, and I, I hope this debate uh, will do so. It's interesting that the lights went out at the moment you said that. <laughs> I think that's a metaphor, uh, David. We were talking about that uh, beforehand. Uh, here's what the book uh, tries to do. It's more than just about the Scandinavian evidence. The book uh, provides a historical context for the same-sex marriage debate. Uh, plus, it tries to answer the main argument made for the old federal marriage amendment, now called the Marriage Protection Amendment. 
And then finally, and I think most interestingly, it provides a roadmap for our heterogeneous future. Now, I'd like in um, the time that I have to go through some of our argumentation there, and I have some PowerPoint slides to help you follow. Uh, first, let's uh, look very briefly at the evolution of arguments against same-sex marriage in the United States. Uh, the arguments for same-sex marriage have been equality arguments overwhelmingly, and those have remained fairly stable since the early 1990s. The opposition has evolved, and I think it will continue to evolve. Uh, the original argument against same-sex marriage, and the one that swept the day in the 70s and early 80s, was a definitional argument. And that is that uh, two men and two women, as a matter of definition or natural law or the Bible, uh, cannot get married. End of debate, and most of the early cases actually went off in that argument, usually citing Genesis. Now, a variation of the argument that you still see today is the slippery slope argument. Well, uh, if you don't think that it's unnatural for two women to get married, once you allow two women to get married, uh, then there will be a slippery slope. And before you know it, you'll have a man and several women, polygamy, you'll have a brother and sister, incest, and you'll have Judge Posner and his cat. Okay, uh, that argument uh, by the 1990s is by no means dead, but it is, was supplemented in the early 90s by Judge Posner, among other eminent scholars, with stamp of approval arguments. And that is that in addition, same-sex marriage would be undesirable or uh, not something we want because it would place a state stamp of approval on relationships that are not as worthy and productive as different sex relationships. Sometimes this argument morphed into uh, a variation I call no promo homo. You don't want to promote homosexuality. <laughs> and these are made by very serious scholars at Harvard, Chicago, etc. Uh, and then finally, and this is the argument that's dominated since the mid-90s, the Defense of Marriage Act, and that is that same-sex marriage would hurt marriage, would be the end of marriage. Uh, no one would want to get married or they wouldn't stay married. And so the biggest losers in this case would be uh, children because they would be raised outside of marriage, which uh, uh, Ms. Gallagher has argued, I think very persuasively, uh, is often bad for them. Now, in the 2004 debate on the Federal Marriage Amendment, that argument was updated to take account of international evidence, i.e. the registered partnership statute in Denmark in 1989 and other Scandinavian countries in the 1990s. And the argument made by Frist, Bork, DeLay, Santorum, and others was, we'd been telling you all along, President Clinton told you that marriage needed defending against him and others, and uh, uh, it would die if you adopted homosexual marriage. Well, the Scandinavians did it, and that's exactly what happened. And one after another, these people got up and said, uh, well, people are not marrying anymore, the marriages are dissolving, and children are now all being uh, born in uh, non-marital households. Now, what we try to do in our book is we uh, look at the history of the Scandinavian statutes, mainly the Danish statute and some of the rest. We look at the evidence of who is registered and the demographics of it, uh, and then we uh, draw some conclusions. We draw three kinds of conclusions. Uh, one is uh, that uh, registered partnership uh, in Denmark and these other countries uh, has improved the lives of the same-sex couples who have registered. Uh, there are not uh, hundreds of thousands of couples in any of these countries. They're uh, more in the four digits, so it's not a huge portion of the population. But registered partnership has, what we have found by looking at uh, survey evidence, by doing online polls, by interviewing people, we interviewed more than three dozen couples, um, is that it has enriched the lives of these couples in a wide variety of ways. 
Uh, for one thing, uh, it's provided in Scandinavia, as we have in the United States, tangible benefits, including health insurance, uh, which is more important here than it is there uh, because of socialized medicine in Scandinavia. It's provided tangible security from knowing that your loved one will be your surrogate decision maker in the case of an injury and will be your heir if you uh, suffer death. We found over and over again, and this was actually more important than the tangible monetary benefits, we found over and over again that there were intangible benefits reported by these couples, their friends, their families. Uh, and one of them is that the state gave these couples a greater feeling of belonging to one another. It gave them a public way of expressing their interpersonal commitment. And it reinforced uh, their relationships with coworkers, friends, their communities, and in many cases, their churches. Uh, much more uh, speculatively, we found some evidence, we didn't survey this in as much detail, that the registered partnerships also brought advantages to the friends, families, and co-workers of these individuals who had registered as partners. Uh, and in some cases, uh, cohabiting different sex couples were inspired to marry because of the example of their lesbian and gay brethren and sister. Uh, we also found uh, public benefits, and we document some of those. Uh, marriage uh, in both countries, Denmark and the United States, is a form of privatized social welfare. That the government does not have to take care of you when you are in distress if you have a partner and a family to do that. Uh, and this potentially not only saves the government a lot of money, but is better for the community and the care-giving uh, uh, recipient as well. Uh, we found that the registered partnership process contributed to the integration of lesbian and gay persons and couples into workplaces and communities, and has made Denmark actually a very attractive situs for international business. It's helped Denmark in attracting very qualified trained workers, even from overseas, many of them from the United States and England, which are less gay-friendly than those places. And perhaps most importantly, we found, and uh, other studies have documented, uh, significant uh, public health benefits flowing either directly or indirectly from either a gay-friendly atmosphere or even specifically from same-sex marriage. Uh, we find in all of these countries that the rate of HIV infection stabilized or dropped um, compared with other countries after they recognized partnerships. Uh, there is empirical evidence uh, from a uh, national study that some sexually transmitted diseases fell because of same-sex marriage, in other words, controlling for all other variables. Same-sex marriage was the variable that made a difference. For some diseases, uh, other diseases, it was not statistically significant enough to draw firm conclusions. Now, the final, and perhaps for today's discussion, most important uh, finding is that we do provide evidence on the claim that same-sex marriage or registered partnership will harm the institution of marriage. So look at the predictions made in the uh, debate in, 19, in 2004. One prediction is that Danes will stop getting married, at least in great numbers. Married Danes will divorce. The evidence does not support that. Um, the marriage rate in Denmark plummeted from 907 persons per 100,000 in 1950, which was a high point, to 628 in 1975. It fell further to 573 in 1985. And then in 1989, we had registered partnership, and it has actually bounced up to 666, sorry about that number, uh, in 1995, and 699 in 2004. The 2004 is not reflected on that graph. The divorce rate 
uh, rose uh, from 160 per 100,000 Danes in 1950, uh, a low point, uh, to 262 in 1975, to 281 in 1985, and then it eroded to 249 in 1995, and it did bounce back to 292 in 2004. And we give you the five-year averages on that graph. Uh, another prediction, and this is perhaps an even more important one made by the opponents, and that is that more children will be born out of wedlock. <clears throat> well, again, let's look at the data. And here we do have a time series on our little graph. Look at the data. Uh, in the early 1970s, in 1970, 11% of Danish children were born outside of marriage. That number had skyrocketed to 33% in 1980. It bounces up further to 46% in 1989. These are astronomical increases. After 1989, as you will see, it plateaus and then actually declines a little bit since 1996 and every year since. It has been between about 44 and 45%. Maybe not numbers to be proud of, but certainly not numbers that support, and in fact, I think falsify the prediction that registered partnership will be the end of marriage in places like Denmark. Okay? Here's what the demographics show you. If uh, critics were correct that same-sex marriage will destroy marriage, or at least hasten its demise, uh, we would expect to see, in the non-marital birth weight, for example, uh, number one, the escalating numbers not just to continue. Remember, 11, 33, 46, these are huge increases to go up to 70, 80, 90 but we would expect to see the rate of increase itself go up, right? If same-sex marriage were having an influence. And yet we see neither. We see neither the same rate of large increase, nor do we see an escalating rate of increase. Instead, we see initially a plateauing and then a modest decrease, okay? Now we have similar evidence for Norway and Sweden, which we can talk about in the uh, question and answer session. Uh, the Danish law is the main law, uh, it's the oldest law, it's the one we have the most data on. Now I think there are some lessons we can draw from the Scandinavian experience. Um, one lesson is that the Scandinavian experience does undermine all three arguments against same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage is not an oxymoron. Uh, in these countries, it's called registered partnership, but it's all the legal rights and duties, and people there call it marriage, and so therefore we, we go along with Stanley Kurtz and others who call it marriage as well. So same-sex marriage is not an oxymoron. Second, on the promotion of same-sex couples, the state should be promoting them. These same-sex couples are unquestionably productive. Uh, they're good people. They're doing good things. They're raising children in increasing numbers, and they're doing a damn good job of it. Yes, they should receive stamps of approval. And then finally, the institution of marriage is not harmed by these same-sex couples. Now, one thing I predict <clears throat> as a result of this evidence, uh, and I think this will just continue to be the case, is that I think opponents' arguments against same-sex marriage will, will again change. They've already changed uh, in the last 15 years. I think they will change again. There will be less enthusiasm for the defense of marriage argument, which is now being falsified. And they'll return to arguments innovated by Anita Bryant in 1977 in the Save Our Children campaign against anti-discrimination ordinances. And that is that these ordinances or laws or whatnot are bad because they impinge upon the constitutional or legal rights of traditionalists. And I think we'll start seeing, I think we already have started seeing, those arguments uh, taking more center stage. Uh, here's a second conclusion, and that is that traditionalists are not helping marriage by scapegoating lesbian and gay unions. 
uh, especially if the scapegoating deflects the attention from deeper problems with marriage, which is, number one, the increase of cohabitation as an attractive alternative. We've seen this in Europe and the United States. Number two, the increase in divorce rates with deadbeat dads not supporting their children. Uh, and three, violence within marriage. These are all much more significant problems with marriage. By demonizing lesbian and gay unions and making that the Maginot line, you are actually detracting from the project of strengthening the institution and contributing to the happiness and well-being of the children being raised in those broken homes. Uh, and then finally, um, uh, again, we can talk about this more in the Q&A. I think here's what we see for the future. Uh, Same-sex marriage is not going to sweep the United States. Even if it were true that there are no good arguments against it, it's not going to sweep the United States for emotional and other reasons. What we're going to see in the foreseeable future is regional heterogeneity, exactly like what we see in Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, in the United States, the trend is going to be in the Northeast and the Pacific Coast, there's going to be recognition of something. Yesterday, there was an argument in New York Court of Appeals. Before that, there was a New Jersey argument. California passed a statute vetoed by the governor. There's action in most of these states of the Northeast and of the Pacific uh, Rim uh, to recognize something. Maybe it'll be reciprocal beneficiaries like Hawaii has done. Some of them may be same-sex marriage like Massachusetts. Others like Connecticut and um, Vermont. Legislatures have created civil unions. We're not going to see this in the South or the border states. Uh, David and I are from Kentucky and West Virginia, respectively. David, I don't think we're going to see this in the states that you and I were born in or the states where you and I went to college. He went to Vanderbilt and I went to Davidson, uh, both in the South. Uh, we're not going to see in the South and the border states and the plain states either same-sex marriage or civil unions or probably even statewide domestic partnership in the near future. Will the Supreme Court force uh, those institutions on those states? You can bet they won't in the foreseeable future and maybe never. Uh, where we are going to see action is in the Midwest and the non-Mormon West where there is going to be limited recognition with a limited number of benefits and obligations, compromises to be worked out. Now, I'll conclude with uh, this observation, and, and the book devotes some space to this, <clears throat> that here's where we're moving in the West. Now, uh, Maggie, this might not be a good thing. I don't endorse or, or denounce it. But here's where I think we're moving. We're moving toward a menu approach uh, where uh, uh, no one has this entire menu now, though some of the European countries uh, have most of it, and uh, some of our states are moving in this direction already. And that is that partners, uh, sexual or otherwise, are going to have a choice of legal recognition regimes keyed to their level of commitment. And of course, they can probably move from one to the other, you know, by divorce or signing up or whatnot. And uh, I'm including covenant marriage, even though that's not taken off. Uh, I personally actually endorse the idea of covenant marriage, and actually I think there should be more stringent requirements. So I endorse the experiments of Arkansas, Arizona, and Louisiana. If you're really interested in uh, helping marriage and restoring some of the integrity that marriage has lost in the 20th century. In my view, what you should do is expand marriage by legislation to same-sex couples, eager new recruits who will do honor to the institution and are already raising children in the United States. One-third of the lesbian couples raising children. One, I think, fifth of the male couples raising children in the United States. They're already doing that with or without marriage. But at the same time that the legislature adopts same-sex marriage, the same legislature in the same bill should adopt covenant marriage as an alternative for people who really want to uh, assert binding commitment, or at least more binding commitment, than you have now in an era of no-fault divorce. Well, okay, I eagerly await what uh, Maggie Gallagher has to say, 
And I'll, I reserve just a few minutes for rebuttal. Okay. Go ahead. I'll speak from here if that's okay. Um, thank, thank you, Bill. I will give oh, you an okay. introduction. Okay, give me an introduction. All right. I thought I needed none. Maggie Gallagher needs no introduction in a debate on same-sex marriage, but our rules require that she get one anyway. <laughs> Maggie Gallagher is the president of the Institute for Marriage and Public Policy, whose motto is Strengthening Marriage for a New Generation. She's also a nationally syndicated columnist. She's the author of three books on marriage, including most recently one with University of Chicago professor Linda Waite called The Case for Marriage, Why Married People Are Happier, Healthier, and Better Off Financially. National Journal has named her to its list of the most influential people in the same sex marriage debate. She has testified before Congress. She has written for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, as well as law reviews. She's a graduate of Yale, and she is the mother of two children. Please welcome Maggie Gallagher. Thank you. I'm, um, can, am I, am I, okay, good. Um, it's an honor to be on the same panel with Bill, who's like an actual professor at Yale, whereas I'm merely an undergraduate, uh, gr a graduate of Yale College. Um, in some ways, I think this may be a little bit frustrating debate for Bill, because I really feel like he wanted to come in here and debate Stanley Kurtz, and instead he's going to have to listen to what Maggie Gallagher thinks, and, and really uh, Stanley and my positions are, are pretty distinct. Um, before I go into that, I'd I always like to ask, how many of you are in favor of gay marriage? How many of you have opposed? And how many of you either aren't sure or say it's none of my business? So could I get a show of hands? How many are in favor of gay marriage? How many are opposed? And how many say it's none of my business? Good. Not sure. <laughs> or not sure. <laughs> Thank you. Not, not atypical for my audiences. Um, I, uh, I actually have never believed that Stanley Kurtz has made his case. That is, the evidence he presents proves that gay marriage is a cause of decline in Scandinavia, which was the first set of arguments that he did. I also disagree with Stanley and apparently with Professor Eskridge that civil unions and gay marriage are functionally the same thing. In fact, I think you know, I, I come out of this presentation saying, well, gee, it sounds like a, if, if civil unions and gay marriage are the same thing, it's a powerful case for going for civil unions because it's a relatively uncontroversial thing to do. And if it makes no difference to the gay couples, uh, and there is any risk at all to the, to the social functions of marriage in, in redefining it by courts, it seems to me that there's a real win-win here uh, in which... Uh, you know, Bill, Bill it, it perhaps inadvertently makes a pretty strong case against gay marriage and for civil unions by the strategies that he adopts. Um, the second reason why I think, you know, I was never tempted to endorse uh, Stanley's argument is that unlike most people in the gay marriage debate, I'm a longtime participant in that other marriage debate about divorce and unmarried childbearing. And, you know, I have watched scholars debate whether no-fault divorce increased the divorce rate, you know, for, for some 40 years. And actually, there's some interesting new consensus beginning to emerge. But for most of that time, there, and, and only beginning, you, you, you couldn't say, based on social science evidence, whether no-fault divorce raised the divorce rate or lowered the divorce rate or had no effect on the divorce rate, although one of those three things had to be true. And that's because the tools of social science are fairly primitive uh, in addressing uh, this kind of legal change. You know, you change the law of marriage or divorce once, 
a lot of other things are happening at the same time. It's very unlike the kind of data we have on children of divorce and unmarried parenting, where lots of children are born every year. year you can do you know, experiments over and over again, and eventually you reach uh, some kind of consensus. So I would say that as a, you know, putting on my strict, I'm not really a social scientist, but I play one on TV, putting on my strict cap from my years of involvement in these social science debates and ask, what do we know uh, from, uh, of the evidence from Europe is the title. We must show the cover of your book, Bill. Go buy it. It's a very interesting book. Um, you know, what's the evidence? I would say we don't know very much at all. I mean, I'm struck by the role that evidence plays in this debate, and this is in some ways not a critique of Bill, obviously. Many people are out there making social science arguments, and, and you, you know, public policy does not always correspond to the debates with the strict kind of academic standards of discourse. Um, but I'm struck by the, what I've found over many years in this marriage debate, which is that if you're going to say anything that sounds remotely traditional in America, you must have mounds of very strict social science evidence before you're permitted to say it. Otherwise, you're making a moral argument, right? Whereas if you're provo provide, uh, proposing anything kind of innovative and novel and untested and untried, you need virtually no evidence at all. Bill has done some interesting interviews with, he told you, three dozen gay couples in Europe on which we are now told we have definitive evidence on how gay marriage is affecting gay couples in Europe. If I tried to do that on the marriage issue itself, I would be laughed out of the room. I mean, really, frankly. Um, and I think that there is, um, and the extent to which, the other thing that's striking me, to me is the extent to which promoters of gay marriage have put themselves in this odd position where they seem to feel the need to say there are no arguments left. There's no rational argument left against this. Here I am, I'm proposing overturning the basic understanding of marriage that has existed in virtually every, with all the you know, tremendous differences in marriage. Every, almost every single society has something that involves bringing together male and females into a union in which the rights and responsibilities of men and, men and women as mothers and fathers are publicly supported and defined. And yet, so the, the, you know, we can overturn this rule, and there's no rational reason to even imagine that it would have any effect on a marriage culture. Um, I think, as I said, I think there's a reason for that, and I'll get to that in a minute. But it's a little peculiar to me to watch how the white scientific jacket gets put on and then sort of torn off, and, and the quality of evidence which is used to say definitively, we now know this X, Y, Z is happening in Europe, versus what it would take, what it did take to produce what I think in the book uh, Bill denies is a fairly strong consensus that in fact marriage is good for children. Um, so what we don't know about uh, gay marriage from Europe, we don't know anything from Scandinavia about gay marriage because they don't yet have gay marriage. We don't know how registered partnerships benefit the people who do them based on any social science. I mean there's good reasons for inferring that they might uh, I'm not saying they don't, but based on the evidence, we just don't know. Compared to long-term cohabitation that's not legally registered, how does registered partnership benefit gay couples? As far as I can tell, there's no evidence provided uh, based on the kind of you know, scientific studies that you would do if the question was, does, do mar are married couples better off? And that we did do in that kind of research. Uh, we don't know how children are benefited, if at all, if their gay parents marry. Okay? You know, there's a logical presumption that maybe there are benefits Based on the evidence, we don't know. We don't even know how many children um, are uh, in these unions, at least not in Canada or the United States. Um, and um, I don't even know if we know it from Netherlands. Maybe Bill does. Um, 
What do we know based on the evidence in Europe? Just for one small question. I would say that we know two things based on, uh, well, one thing based on good data and one based on a reasonable inference. The first thing we know is that when gay marriage has been offered in Europe, in the Netherlands, uh, very few gay couples take advantage of it. All right, we now had, we just released a policy brief, we chewed through the data in every legislation, every jurisdiction where you have gay marriage. And um, in the, the best estimate is that after almost five years of gay marriage in the Netherlands, somewhere between two and six percent of gay people have entered a same-sex marriage. Um, that may be because legal, other legal partnerships are available and they prefer it. I don't know. I mean, you can have a discussion of why. But the rates of entry appear to be very low, and I, we can discuss the data in other jurisdictions as well if you want. Um, the second thing that we might reasonably infer, and again, this is based on civil union data from Sweden, and it's not based on an internet survey, which is essentially a focus group. You know, it's not representative of anything. Um, but on, in Sweden, they keep very good data, data. Not, not a representative sample of everyone who entered a same-sex union that was legalized, but every single same-sex union. So they have extremely good data on this. And uh, in a uh, research, which actually I believe Bill cites in his book, um, shows both low rates of entry and unusually high rates of dissolution compared to opposite-sex couples who enter uh, legal unions. So the gay male couples were 50% more likely to divorce, and um, female couples were 167% more likely to divorce, which a sociologist colleague of mine said, oh, yes, that's because there's two women to become dissatisfied with the relationship. Um, <laughs> the men are laughing. Um, the, the, uh, oh, what can we, well, now, these are very preliminary data. Five years is not an enormous amount of time. But I am struck, I do think that you have to be struck by the difference between the statement that there are these enormous benefits for gay couples from marriage and the disjunction that when, in fact, gay marriage is opened up, we don't see, at least in Europe, a very large number of gay couples taking advantage of it. It doesn't mean that there aren't some who do and like it, but if this is the enormous deprivation that we're being provided, you kind of have to ask why so few people are taking advantage of it. That's speculative and it could change. But the second thing I think that you have to face is if there are important benefits associated with marriage for gay people, that marriage is not going to be a very good delivery vehicle for giving them to, to uh, gay people or couples. So, I mean, I happen to think that if a gay person is sick in a hospital, that he or she should have any person they love, you know, be able to have anyone they love in that hospital room and should have anyone they designate in charge of their medical care if they become incompetent. And uh, if this is the problem, if, if, for example, hospital systems are ill-treating gay people in this way, then we need to come up with a better solution than marriage because, you know, the 95% the, the of people in the Netherlands who are not, gay people in the Netherlands who are not married need to have these sets of rights too. Um, the, uh, let me briefly sketch out for you the argument that I make on gay marriage and that in spite of the data that Bill presents I think is true and we're certainly going to continue to make. It sounds to some people like a slippery slope argument, but it really isn't. It's an, for me, it's an argument from justice, right? There are now two ideas at work in the public square. One is that there's something distinctive about unions of husbands and wives that deserves distinct treatment in law and society. The other is that there's no difference between 
same-sex and opposite-sex couples, and anyone who thinks otherwise is a hate-filled bigot. By the way, the reason I think you have to, you, gay marriage advocates have adopted this odd burden of saying there's no possible argument against gay marriage, even though it's never existed in any other society through human history until five years ago, is the second part is very important to them, that, that the opposition to gay marriage is deeply rooted in, in homophobia, in, uh, in um, or can own, not only deeply rooted, but can only be rooted in bigotry, homophobia, and hate, which commits you to the position that there's no, you know, you can't just have a better argument and win it. You've got to demolish your opposition and, and demonize them into becoming people who are motivated by sexual disgust or dark passions of various sorts. And I, I actually think it's kind of disabling as you, as you go into the, you know, it's increasingly disabling advocates of gay marriage to have adopted this view, and it's also not true. The place for me to start on the gay marriage issue is the question, why is it that in virtually every known human society there's been something recognizably called marriage, right? It's always a public sexual union, not just a private one, which men and women, sometimes multiples thereof, are brought into a public union where their, their rights and responsibilities towards each other and their children are publicly supported and defined. And these are in radically different ecological, economic, completely different cultures, you know, little desert tribes, mountain plateaus. I think the answer is rooted in three enduring facts about human nature that every successful society needs to wrestle with. The first is that the vast majority of men and women are powerfully attracted and not by reason to an act that creates new life. Right? Sex between men and women makes babies. Conception is not a mental act. Uh, the second idea is that you need babies. You know, you have to re successfully reproduce if you're going to survive long enough so that you know, when the anthropologists go out there with their little pencils and pens and tape recorders, you're, you're still around. So society needs babies. And those babies need a father as well as a mother. And it's frankly fatherhood. You know, children need mothers and fathers. You've heard that. It's frankly fatherhood that's at stake in the marriage debate because the reality, as a group of scholars wrote in a New Jersey amicus brief recently, um, when a baby is born, there's bound to be a mother close by somewhere, right? Marriage is the way that you attach fathers to the, to the children they make, to the mother-child bond, in a way that protects both children and mothers and spares women from the enormous unequal burdens of parenting alone. And it's my belief that you need, you know, I, if, if, with more time I would grind out the social science data, it's amazing what I do, to show you that each of these things remain true. But I'd like to just focus briefly Oh, shoot, my computer died. Um, on the marriage debate itself, do, ch you know, do children need mothers and fathers? Because it's here, I think, where the standards of evidence that are used uh, become, the, the gap in the standards of evidence become most clear. And it's also clear, by the way, that this is not, uh, that like many, like most, I, I know John Rauch is here, and he's certainly an exception, most advocates of gay marriage are not willing to say that uh, people ought to be married before they have children, or, and certainly not that children need a mother and a father. But um, Child Trends in 2002 published, if you don't believe me, which I don't expect you to, Child Trends, you know, a leading, you could call them center-left, mainstream, whatever, child research organization issued a, a, a brief summarizing the social science research on marriage and child well-being. And their conclusion Oh, good, it came back, is this. 
Research clearly demonstrates that family structure matters for children, and the family structure that helps the most is a family headed by two biological parents in a low-conflict marriage. Children in single-parent families, children born to unmarried mothers, children in step-families or cohabiting relationships face higher risks of poor outcomes. There is thus value in promoting strong, stable marriages between biological parents. One of the reasons that I'm so convinced that uh, there, let me give you this, the brief theoretical and then the practical reason why I'm convinced that acceptance of gay marriage leads to a change in this understanding of marriage. Um, the first is that, as I said, the consequence of the no difference argument. I mean, advocates of gay marriage are making a passionate moral argument while they put on their scientific jackets and say, no, we, we have reason and science on our side and there's no rational argument against us. And the passionate moral argument is that there is no difference between these two kinds of couples and that anyone who thinks otherwise, therefore, is motivated by malice or unreason. Right? This is an idea that has important consequences. What must drop out if you're, going to, if you're going to believe this? Well, one thing that has to drop out is that you can no longer assign special significance to the fact that when men and women have sex, they make children by that act. And that the sexual bond is therefore deeply, or its absence, is therefore deeply tied in to child well-being in a way that is not true for other kinds of sexual unions. So the idea that marriage is, has in some important way about actually making the next generation and also about family structure, about connecting fathers to the mothers of their children, and that these are important, this is, that there's a need for a social institution that has these goals. This is the idea that has to go. The, and almost every advocate of gay marriage and almost every legal brief advocating gay marriage, these are the two ideas that, are, uh, that advocates attempt to refute. And the bill in this book also says, and, you know, in the menu of options, which he says he's not advocating, but he, he describes this, uh, 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 an intense policy debate right now about whether or not marriage matters for children. And uh, he, like other advocates of gay marriage, use this new body, newer body of literature on gay parenting to discredit the claim that children do better with their mothers and fathers. I'll briefly, or at least to call it into question, you, you say it undermines my argument. I'll give you the page note. You know, I went to the back and looked up where you mentioned me, so I'm, I'm really up. Maybe it was your co-author, I don't know. You're mentioned very prominently, yeah. and, favorably, and always favorably, actually. Well, th job. thank you. Um, <laughs> um, so the the um, the, the reason for thinking that changing the definition of marriage to include gay couples will change marriage is, first of all, this, this, the, the, the clear drive for gay marriage is to establish this new equality narrative, which requires you to minimize the significance of this great historical thing that marriage has been about in um, virtually every human society. The advocates in their court briefs, in the, in the uh, you know, two courts, make this argument very explicitly. In places like Massachusetts, where you've won gay marriage, there's a clear attempt to make this a simple statement like children need their mothers and fathers, the equivalent of hate speech. If you go back and see what, when Governor Romney said that, you know, he, 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 you would have thought he said, you know, something that I would never say about gay people, right? He, that idea is treated as bigotry in and of itself. It's going to be hard to sustain it in an area where elites where the courts treat this kind of old idea of marriage as a form of bigotry. And the final reason, I think, for imagining that there's some relationship between these sets of ideas 
is the fact that although uh, uh, that the countries that are moving towards gay marriage and particularly voluntarily, that is without court interference, are actually clearly in the process of doing what um, Bill Eskridge said. They're in the process of denorming marriage as the key social institution of uh, backing away from the idea that it, it's the preferred way for people to raise children in their countries. So much so that I even, I recently there's a study by uh, Ron Lasehi, who's a premier demographer in Europe, who, um, population demographer, and he's looking for evidence of what he calls the second demographic transition in the United States which is the move towards more family diversity, if you want to look at it positively, delayed marriage and childbearing, and extremely low fertility, insufficient to replace the population, which is characteristic of virtually all of Europe in one form or another. There, there are important southern and northern and Scandinavian differences. But, and um, it was interesting because he identified uh, seven or eight states as um, well into, showing well into evidence of this demographic transition. And they were uh, California, Maryland, uh, New York, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, oh, and I forget one more. But with the exception of, it was striking to me that with the exception of Rhode Island, they were all states. I mean, I don't know what instinct taught the litigators in the gay marriage battle that these were the places to go take your case in gay marriage because they're the ones who have progressed enough in this new understanding of marriage as being unrelated to generativity that they would be more likely to be open to it, but I think it's true. Simply put, the places where marriage is still viewed as importantly related to generativity, to, you know, to bringing together male and female, the two halves of the human race so that life goes on, and who see that as an important mission, are going to find gay marriage difficult or incomprehensible. Conversely, places that are in the process of moving culturally to a new idea of marriage as either just one of many family forms with no particular preference for it or as uh, a celebration of the adult romantic bond disconnected from family and generativity are going to find gay marriage uh, pretty congenial. The, um, and I don't think that there's much evidence from Europe or from anywhere else to dispute it. We're now in a very, and I'll close up, we're now in a very serious uh, situation in my view. I mean, I've been in this, not the gay marriage debate, but the whole marriage debate for about 25 years. Every developed society that we know of is now finding it really difficult to do what almost every society succeeded in doing, you know, getting together men and women to, 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 to raise children together, to have enough children to replace the population, and to stay together and raise their children in a reliable way. And in the middle it, it, it's a crisis that in the European context actually seems to me to be civilizationally threatening. That is, your, your, replace, your fertility rates have now dropped to the, your about 1.5 children uh, per woman, which means that you would have the population every 64 years approximately. Um, they're heading down, you, you know, you, many countries are at the 1.3 range or 1.1 range where you're cutting your population in half every 32 years. I don't think it's sustainable. And in the middle of a, uh, of a clear problem with marriage, which was not caused by gay people, and has, gay people cannot solve it, and Bill's entirely right that we need to be paying more attention to marriage in general, it's not helpful for courts to step in and redefine this conjugal vision of marriage that says family structure and generativity is important as a form of bigotry. And it's likely to make it extremely difficult to sustain and strengthen a marriage culture. 
So if I could urge you between these two presentations, there is one point of, of uh, possible agreement, which is to say, if there's anything at all to this theory that there's something important about marriage being a union of husband and wife, and civil unions will be just as good for gay people, there is very little case for declaring gay marriage a constitutional right with all the potential disruptions and the threats to traditional organizations and institutions. That will happen if we move in that route. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. David, Maggie, Sure. I'm, I'm going to give uh, each uh, speaker a couple of minutes for rebuttal or, or response before we open it up. Uh, let me let me say all the references in the book, Maggie, are you know quite appreciative of you, and we actually have a lot of common ground um, because I'm on record as supporting civil unions. Now, I I think uh, uh, courts uh, should reverse the burden of inertia, uh, but I'm not at all sure what courts should order as a remedy. Very often, nothing is what they did in Vermont. Now, I do think there are several points of contention that I want to address. Uh, one is uh, I want to emphatically disagree that at least in the published work, and I think in the briefs, I've not read all the briefs, that the opposition of same-sex marriage, I have never said that it's based upon homophobia. And in fact, this book, if you really want an answer to Ms. Gallagher's argument, this book refutes that. Because what I give is, uh, a, I think, a deep cultural uh, set of reasons why non-bigoted people are anxious about same-sex marriage. Um, and some of them have to do with the line drawing. In the West, our identity, our views about sexuality and gender are very much informed by lines that we're born with and we're raised with. And that's why I use the Maginot line uh, example, that France uh, identified itself in the period after World War I in part based upon the Maginot line. We are protecting ourselves against the heathen, right? Now, they'd forgotten that Germany got into France in World War I by marching through Belgium, and they didn't build the Maginot Line across Belgium. So the same thing happened to them during World War II, and I think there is significance to that metaphor. Uh, and I might say I watched the New York Court of Appeals argument as best I could yesterday. It was televised um, on the, in the same-sex marriage cases they've consolidated. Not once did an attorney. I've read the briefs. Uh, the briefs in the New York case never make that argument. The attorneys never made that argument. The judges never made that argument. I think that's a lavender herring. Now, here's a more serious, I think, point of disagreement. And this is one you can't quantify, et cetera. And that is, uh, uh, I think uh, it is fair to say where we differ uh, legitimately is Maggie's uh, either exclusive or well-nigh exclusive focus on children and lots of them conceived biologically between the parents in the old-fashioned way. And that's her idea of generativity. And I simply uh, don't agree. That is no longer what generativity is in the United States or Europe and is not necessarily what it should be. The generativity is a broader idea, and that's one reason I can say and do say that same-sex couples can contribute to the generative uh, process. And we do have a lot of data. This book is chock full of data. Now, not all of it's going to be controversial. It's going to be data about what the family's like. And we make the point about divorces. This, we make this point. Uh, uh, this is data which both supports and undermines, and some of it's very neutral as to the normative debate. Here is what's going on in America, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that is that many couples do not have children. Many couples choose not to have children for age reasons, for temperament reasons, for a lot of reasons. And I don't see anything heinously wrong with that. Many couples, and not just gay and lesbian couples, many married couples have children that they did not conceive in the old-fashioned way. 
Uh, we have artificial insemination. We have surrogacy. We have adoption. Uh, uh, not all of these are morally equivalent, uh, but most sex in America by a huge margin is today not procreative. Most marital sex by a huge margin is not procreative. Uh, and most procreation, or much procreation, not most, is not a result of sexual activity between the husband and the wife, or the spouses. Uh, and then finally, I am not driven by this fear of overpopulation. Uh, we are destroying the earth that God created by too many people on this earth. Am I disturbed? I'm French in, in ancestry. My uh, uh, mother's family came from France in the late, 19th, late 17th century and early 18th century. So my native land is you know, not reproducing itself. Am I disturbed? I am not disturbed in the least by that. Because the Earth's population generally is reproducing itself with perfectly good but undernourished and not cared for human beings. And that's fine with me. And it's fine with me if California is not reproducing itself. And whatever states that Maggie forgot to mention, I'm not disturbed by that. That the problem today is not that humanity is going to die out. This is not the handmaiden's tale. Uh, the problem today is overpopulation and it's global warming. And that is factual. Those are facts. Uh, we're not experts on that, but I am sure we've got experts in there they could document that. Okay, so that's a big point of disagreement. Here's another point of disagreement. Although I think this is not really a disagreement. I cite and rely on your studies when the wait. I think it's a fabulous study. Remember, our normative disagreement is I think marriage actually does is pretty good. I think you do benefit from marriage. I'm persuaded by your, your evidence. You should have written that in your book, actually. It's in the book. We cite you. We, we say this is, you know, we go along with this. But the book, we don't make a contribution. What we also say, Maggie, is we don't make a contribution to that debate because we agree with you. The contribution we do make is that we do bring the Scandinavian evidence to bear. And this was not our original research. Gunilla Vitoft, who's discussed on pages 197 and following of our book, did the leading discussion in Scandinavia criticizing and showing and documenting the problems with what she calls lone parenthood. Uh, and she gives reasons that she documents from interviews as well as data that, that lone parents suffer emotional overload and are not able financially to provide for their children as well. And this is bad for them, it's bad for the children, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, the distinction she makes is not between children being raised in a marital household and a non-marital one, but children being raised by single parents. And while there, uh, I think, is in the United States some association between being unmarried and, and then splitting up, uh, it's not so clear in Scandinavia. And indeed, the United States is by no means any kind of lodestar in this respect that we see in the United States, according to one study several years ago, 26.5% of the households in the United States with children are headed by single parents, usually mothers, but sometimes fathers. The number in Denmark in 2001 was 18.4%. Okay? Uh, now, is that caused by same-sex marriage? Of course it's not. Uh, we don't argue that. Uh, but the point is that if you want to focus on the well-being of children, I think you do want to focus on preserving unions of the partners, even if they're not the biological parents of the children, uh, who can do, I think, Maggie thinks, a better job of raising those children. And I think that also applies to gay and lesbian parents, and we have a dispute there. And we're also in agreement, and I think we say this in the book, that the social science evidence is not in on that. 
And maybe we'll never be in on that because you can't get a random sample. Well, you problems. could. It would just be expensive. Um, and then the final point of disagreement uh, is that this is not nearly as large a historical shift as, as Maggie uh, is making out. In my earlier book, The Case for Same-Sex Marriage in 96, this data has been around for a while. What I documented in that book is, is that uh, we all know there have been same-sex couples throughout Western human history. Uh, there have been sexual unions between women and between men in most civilizations uh, in human history. And these have been recognized as marriages in many African cultures, many Native American cultures, in the ancient world, and now in the modern West. Uh, the idea of same-sex marriage is not new, nor is civil unions new. Uh, I think uh, the bigger change in marriage uh, is if you ask, what is marriage for? That was uh, Graf's uh, question in her book, which is an excellent book. What is marriage for? Uh, well, in terms of civil law, religion is all over the place. Religion is different. But if you look at the New York marriage statute, and I think the same is true here in D.C., what marriage is for is not procreation. It's not for procreation. It's mainly for recognizing and reinforcing interpersonal uh, commitment and partnership. It's mainly for that. And secondarily, marriage provides bright line decision-making rules uh, and assurances that if something happens to you, which is almost always unpredictable, there is a surrogate decision-maker who will be your heir, your executrix, your decision-maker, etc., etc. And then thirdly, to the extent it's for children, it's for the raising of children. Uh, which very often in state codes are in a separate portion of the code providing your obligations of maintenance, support, and loyalty to your children, including child support. So we do have a very fundamental difference. I think the big legal change was no-fault divorce. We're on the same page on this. We both are no, critics I, of no-fault divorce. We're both critics of no-fault divorce. And I think that is a much bigger change. It's much more uh, drastic liberalization because it eliminates the married-for-life uh, theoretical and to some extent practical commitment that you make when you walk down the aisle. Adding eager new recruits in small numbers, which the evidence in Scandinavia does point to, although we give you actually all the data on that, that the numbers are actually increasing. This is the evidence for Denmark. Every year the total number of registered partnerships has gone up very significantly. So we don't know ultimately how, no how many they're going to be, but it is a, it's a minority even of the gay and lesbian population, as Maggie says. So I think those are the, uh, the main areas of normative dispute, and there are also some factual disputes as well. Maggie? I'll try to be brief, um, and therefore will only inadequately respond so you guys get a chance to say something. First of all, in the court cases, every case that we've lost in gay marriage, we've lost under the rational relation test, which means that the advocates for gay marriage are going into court and saying there is no reason any rational legislature could possibly have for wanting to keep marriage a union of husband and wife. That, that is, in fact, the argument that is being made. And it's interesting to me. I mean, it, it, it is not that courts are saying that being gay, gays are a persecuted minority that have a protected status. Courts seem to be more willing to redefine marriage than to grant a special protective uh, status to gay people at this point uh, akin to uh, race. So... Uh, secondly, I think that if you listen carefully, in spite of our commonalities, Bill, that it's pretty clear that um, one of our big points of disagreements is whether marriage is importantly about regulating 
those sexual unions that could produce children in order to both prevent unmarried and out-of-wedlock childbirth and to encourage men and women to make children in the, in the way that will be most likely to protect children. Um, instead, it's about, as uh, Bill said, it's about celebrating the adult-committed relationships. Um, the pro there's a lot of problems with this view, but one of them is that most of the features of marriage become unintelligible, like if it's commitment you're celebrating, why is this a sexual relationship at all, right? Why aren't we just letting people commit in various ways? Uh, why is sexual fidelity part of the presumption, you know, involved if it is a sexual union? Um, why do you both become parents of the, of, of the children of your partner if you're married, if what it is is the adult commitment to each other that's being celebrated and children are kind of extraneous? Um, I think that it's, as I said, I would stand by, I see very little evidence that you can sustain any kind of strong or strengthening, as I think we need to do, commitment to the idea that marriage, this is what I've done for 20 years, and I've wandered around and said marriage really matters because children need their mother and father. I think that's the idea that's on the line here. And marriage may be about many wonderful things, but it's not going to be about that idea anymore if courts create a right to civil marriage. On the... Um, once again, on the evidence thing, because I meant to mention this, I, I just read to you the, the evidence from Child Trends summarizing the fact that children with cohabiting parents don't do as well as children with married parents. And um, Bill points out that in Europe it's hard to find that evidence because cohabiting parents and married parents tend to be lumped into the same category. So you have two parents versus lone parents, and they find lone parents do worse. That doesn't answer the question of whether married parents do better than cohabiting parents, actually. And at least in the United States, where I am familiar with the data, there is a lot of evidence that children born to two cohabiting parents do less well. And a lot of that is due to the greater relationship uh, instability. Um, but I also want to point out that the evidence on how marriage benefits children that we have. If it were the legal structure that you could just reassign to alternative family forms that were the main vehicle, uh, then children with remarried parents should do just about as well, or should at least do better, than children with lone mothers. And it's a pretty strong consensus that that's not true. You know, children with single mothers and children whose mothers remarry do about the same on average, even though the, sec the children whose parents remarry have more money. Um, and I would say that's pretty strong evidence from, again, in the United States, where I'm very familiar with the family structure data, that the way marriage benefits children is that it increases the likelihood that those children are raised by their own mother and father in a more stable and less conflict-filled union. To the extent marriage succeeds in doing that, that's how we know marriage protects child well-being. It is possible that marriage will protect the children of gay people. Apparently not very many of them, because not very many gay people are getting married. But you would really need to develop both some theories and some evidence before you can say we're depriving these children of important protections because we don't offer them marriage. Again, it could be true, but we don't know it based on the evidence that we have now. Um, and I want, and uh, you know, to, to take this, and again, I, you know, Bill is an excellent law professor, and he knows as much about the history of gay marriage and the legal debate as anyone in the country, and more than I do. But to, to describe the family structure literature as saying, well, it's two parents versus lone parents, but there's no evidence that marriage matters, is just to be ignorant of this body of research. I mean, there are some people who might say that, but they would have to at least engage with what is now 
you know, probably at least 100 studies on the effects of cohabitation versus marriage. So pulling out Ganella Whitehoft and saying, oh, I've refuted this idea that marriage is important, it, you know, cohabitation is just as good, is evidence of intellectual unseriousness about the state of the evidence. All right. Well, I think we have joined the debate, and I want to invite you to join it now. Uh, we will bring microphones around because we are webcasting this both live and on uh, uh, archived. So please wait to be called on, and we'll start right over here. Uh, very good presentation. Thank you. Um, I have a question. Would you advocate uh, straight marriages uh, after women cannot have children, would you advocate uh, straight marriages banning them no. since they wouldn't be allowed to have, since no. they wouldn't be able to have children? No. Okay. Do you want me to explain? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I should have responded because Bill brought up that point. Um, the way marriage protects children is by telling men and women attracted to the opposite sex that there's a preferred kind of union you should be in. And uh, it's not just one of many choices. If it's just one of many choices, it's not very important. If it's not a social norm, it doesn't have to be a strong one where you penalize and stigmatize everyone else, but if it's not a social norm, it doesn't mean much. Every man and woman who marry, first of all, they aren't contradicting the social function of marriage. They aren't saying, we don't care whether a child has a mother and father and uh, because any child that they happen to have or adopt would have this family structure. The second thing is that any man who is married to a woman and keeps his vows is not at risk of producing fatherless household children across multiple households. And in that way is, at least in a minimal sense, positively serving this function of marriage, which is not something really that gay people need. I mean, this, one of this, this thing about gender, you know, and some of you may know, I mean, I, I was an unmud mother for 10 years, so, you know, the sex between men and women makes babies, you know, even if you're a Yale graduate and it wasn't, you know, like your plan. It, it does really happen, and it happens about 60% of American women experience an unintended pregnancy, and 40% have a child as a result of an unintended pregnancy. So um, sending this message in this way is really important, and it's a big thing. You know, you, if children of gay parents turn out to do just as well or even better, when, if we, assuming we had good data, which we don't really right now, um, one reason would be that this isn't how gay people get children, you know. They don't go out one night, think someone looks cute in a bar, and get drunk, bam, there's, there's a baby, right? This is a huge thing that people attracted to the opposite sex have to deal with and that society has to teach the young how to deal with. Um, and so I, we know from both experience that these marriages do serve this function, although only in a minimal sense, and that they don't disrupt its, its social function. So I would, uh, that's my answer. I, I think we also need to use this question-answer period to think more broadly, even beyond this debate. And there, there's one point we don't have data on, and that is the role that law plays in human behavior. See, this is the big problem with Stanley Kurtz. You and I both agree that he's just nonsense on that. And Rick Santorum and Bob Bork and Tom DeLay, and the list goes on. And this is a really interesting question. I tend to think that no-fault divorce had an effect, but as Maggie says, the data are very unruly on that. You would think that it would, and the data are, go both ways. You can still find reputable social scientists uh -huh. who make either case. There is no consensus. Yeah, uh, I so, have my own opinions, but that would be another debate. But this does raise a larger question. To what extent does family law in a polity have an instrumental effect on people's behavior? Okay? That's a big question. 
And in my opinion, it all boils down to burdens of proof. Uh, the burden of proof in the United States is an equality burden. Uh, is if certain couples uh, uh, are engaged in the same sort of commitment exercise, etc., uh, then the state has to give a, some kind of reason why they shouldn't be recognized. Now, there are a lot of reasons that might suffice under the rational basis test. But you've got to have some reason, and the, the presumption is equality. Uh, now, if your reason ultimately ends up being the signals you're sending to the population, that's going to be a very hard reason, I think, to back up, uh, because it's very hard for people to believe that the state has such a dominant influence on the way that we uh, engage in activities. So the state certainly sends a lot of signals that premarital sex is bad, uh, but uh, I, that has not affected adolescent behavior in the last generation, and frankly, it didn't affect it from the 1920s on. So that's a very difficult issue, it seems to me, and, right. and it's ultimately normative. Let's try to get some more questions and Sorry. short answers here. Um, right behind the uh, bar there. Hi. Uh, Jeremy Garrett, Rice University. I'm uh, actually writing a dissertation on marriage, so I appreciated what both of you had to say. A quick question. If the thesis you're advancing is ultimately about uh, the best, what's in the best interest of children, why don't we have something like a, a, an income requirement or something like that? Because surely disparities in income influence child children's outcomes, and I'm wondering why... Because you don't want to forcibly abort poor women. I mean, what, what was the answer to that? I mean... No, no, it's not that they can't have children. It's that they're not going to have the status of marriage unless they have... So we're going to uh, encourage the poor to have unmarried childbearing by putting an income requirement on marriage. Gee, that would protect child well-being. I'm simply saying that... No, I, this is what you're practically proposing. I mean, you, you, I'd like to hear the question. Uh, okay, sorry. What is, is that, do I got your question? It seems to be that we, we're obligated to do whatever's in the best interest of children, which I don't think is actually the case. I think we just have some sort of level at which we say, okay, as long as you don't go below that, it's, it's okay. But I'm just wondering why if we restrict all the possible people who could raise children, so we, we, we want to not give uh, uh, clear status to those of, uh, who are gay who could raise children... Uh, then why not restrict it even further to those who, who are in a, a better financial situation? Because sex between men and women makes babies, regardless of your income. I mean, that's, that's the real answer. The, 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 I, I don't think I ever said it's in the best interest of children, so we have to do it. What I said is every society needs a social institution that's about channeling opposite sex desire so that children aren't hurt by being born in these fragmented families and communities aren't hurt, and so that we have a place where we can encourage men and women to actually make the next generation, and those are the two social functions of marriage. And therefore, there's nothing discriminatory about marriage. The people who serve this social function are in. The, the, the relationships that don't are excluded, and that's why I think it's not. I mean, I really do not believe marriage is discriminatory. I do not believe it's unequal. I believe that there is a small population group that doesn't fit this model, and you may want to develop other means of meeting their so legitimate social needs. But that's my strong answer. But to your specific proposal, do you seriously think we would protect child well-being by barring men and women below an income level from marrying? Be you know, we almost do that actually right now because out-of-wedlock childbearing is, in fact, you know, dominated by people in the lower income groups. Um, would these people be better off if they were married, even if they didn't have higher incomes? I think the answer is yes, if they were in decent, reasonably low-conflict marriages. 
So it's part of the technocratic view of marriage as saying, well, it's symbolically about this, so therefore if we add these restrictions, we'll be improving child well-being. Meanwhile, men and women are going to go around having sex and making babies, right? We're, we're trying to channel this set of behaviors. And uh, just sort of barring men and women from marriage is not going to increase the extent to which children are protected by marriage. Jeremy, let me give a concrete answer briefly to your question. And that is, I think it is worth thinking about what state policies would actually contribute to the well-being of children. And I think we need to expand our field of operations. And again, we might want to borrow from Scandinavia as at least experiments. Now, at the Cato Institute, I'm afraid to say this, but uh, something along the lines of the Family Medical Leave Act. Uh, giving uh, employees, both male and female, opportunities to take time off from work to spend with their children. Again, I'd be very cautious. Maybe it's too expensive to impose on employers. But I do think that would be the kind of state policy that ought to be tried, and then we can study it, as, as we have tried in the United States, and see if, if that might contribute maybe incrementally. I do think with the Cato Institute, the law is very limited as to what it can do. One, one advantage of your proposal is it would allow more children to have both parents at home all day because there would be fewer jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Cato Institute. <laughs> By the way, it is an oddity of this debate that the powerful commitment to have government enforcing equality norms has become a strong libertarian position. I think libertarians are divided on that, actually. I really find this debate fascinating, and I'd have to say, though, Mr. Esther, I'm a complete novice, but I don't think you have captured the subtlety of the uh, Kurtz argument. He never said in Scandinavia, institute gay marriage and then marriage rates plummet. What he said is that in Scandinavia, Denmark and Sweden, where you already have your marriage culture in a shambles, that is a culture that is associated with this drive for gay marriage, which denorms traditional marriage. And he did give an instance of Norway, which was a more conservative culture, where you really saw a negative effect when marriage was imposed on it because it demoralized the advocates for marriage. Now, it seems to me that those of us in the U.S., and you may not agree with this, who say, look, Scandinavia is exactly what we don't want to be. We don't want to denorm marriage, just as Maggie Gallagher has been saying, and we want an early warning system and not go down the path where gay marriage, it doesn't matter whether you have gay marriage or not. I think it's fair to say that as we look at societies that have high levels of traditional marriage, heterosexual marriage, which is where we want to be or where we want to stay, that none of those societies have ever been associated with a drive towards gay marriage. This, based on all of the evidence, it's just associated with not the kind of society that people who really care about marriage and children and that sort of thing want. And is it, this isn't an issue of burden of proof. I don't think that you have won the burden of proof on this argument. Well, here's the answer to that. Uh, your mistake, it's the David Hume problem of post hoc propter hoc. That, that's a problem with Kurtz's arguments generally even if he were right on the facts, which he's unfortunately not. So uh, that's the first point I want to make. Secondly, uh, I actually agree with Kurtz. We document in the book, and we agree with him, that in Europe there is a correlation between countries that have higher cohabitation rates and countries that are open toward recognizing same-sex unions, and probably the same is true in the United States as well. Um, 
But third, we emphatically dispute Kurtz's further point, and this is what he devotes most of his writings to. He just throws away the other one, which is based upon the earlier scholar's work, Kathleen Kiernan primarily, whom we also rely on. Uh, then he further argues that adopting gay marriage will hasten the decline. And I think that's theoretically vulnerable, and we've shown that it's actually practically incorrect. Now, now here's a broader framework of, uh, for thinking about that kind of uh, Kurtz argument. And that is, if you're worried about the effect that law has on union formation, whether it's marriage or what, the two things to keep your eyes on, it would seem to me logically, would be, number one, what are the alternatives for straight people? Because these are the people who are getting married in most of these Western societies. If they have no alternative, if marriage has a monopoly of sex and child raising, which it theoretically did in the United States in 1900, then that is a regime which supports marriage. Okay? And if marriage is for life, that's also a regime that supports lasting marriages where the parents don't split up, etc. Now, those are the two reforms that I would say, at least theoretically, contribute to the decline of marriage. And even there, you do have a hard time proving that. I would just say theoretically. Okay? <clears throat> And, and I think there is some correlation in Denmark. Again, I don't think that co shows causation, but we do show correlation in the tables in the back. But logically, and we've shown empirically, that there's no correlation or causation between then adding some more couples into the institution, committed gay and lesbian couples in small numbers so far, right? and any kind of further effect on the institution. And that's why my challenge to social conservatives is that if you want to draw the line, you should have been drawing the line on no-fault divorce, and you should be drawing the line on competitors to marriage. The divorce rates, I think, are going to be influenced by social affairs. To the extent law influences them, it's going to be no-fault divorce. The marriage rate and the non-marital children rate is going to be driven by the alternatives to marriage and the penalties you get if you don't marry and social factors, and it's very hard to tell how much the law adds or subtracts. That's my position. Can I say briefly, you put your finger – first of all, I don't think Stanley Kurtz's argument is nonsense. I, I don't – I think he assumed a burden of proof that he could not meet. And I also think he's an anthropologist by training. Bill is a law professor by training. Even Lee Badgett has no prior history with family scholarship studies, and it's not surprising that, in my opinion, not much of what's produced meets the standards, the ordinary standards in a kind of social science debate about the effects of law and society, and I've already – but I, I, um, I do think there's this serious question. I mean, the, the, the burden of proof uh, – gay marriage is clearly associated with – a broad support for family diversity and a retreat from the idea that marriage is important because you need to make children and men and women need to raise them together. It's certainly not the prime cause of it, but it is certainly associated with it. And I think that in this country, when courts declare it a civil right, you know, it's, it's probably a pretty strong statement in what is now a kind of live debate over the meaning of marriage. Courts are going to take sides. And they're going to say, no, Bill Eskridge is right. Marriage is no longer about these things. It's a primarily about adult commitment. That's what the court said in Massachusetts. When people say it's about procreation and family structure, the court in Massachusetts said, no, that's not what it's about in the state of Massachusetts. I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that, although law is not the driving force behind these social changes, that when your state's highest legal authorities start pronouncing this older view of marriage as 
objectively false and, and morally motivated by animus, that that's likely to have social and institutional effects. And I do think that the switching of the burden of proof, right? You have a strong moral passion for this issue, and therefore you think you're entitled to switch the burden of proof. You're advocating for a change. What most people in this country experience is a rather dramatic change, Bill. You may think it's not. Most of us do. And yet you are saying it's the, your obligation to prove to me, and I'm really unwilling to accept any evidence unless it's scientifically ironclad, that this won't have any effect. Well, you can stand in your room and do that, but it, you really should take off your white scientist uh, you know, coat when you're doing that. I might add where I'm getting this is from the New York and D.C. statutes. One difference you've got to keep in your mind is the difference between civil marriage, which is statutory, and religious or moral conceptions of marriage, which are not necessarily reflected in these statutes. And the New York statute, which being, was being argued yesterday, they say in the statute, the case law for decades has been saying that marriage is about interpersonal commitment. And we have other provisions, which we think are also very important, that deal with other features of family law, like the obligations you have to your children, the presumptions about who the parents of the child are, and so forth. The courts, the appellate courts disagreed with you, Bill, and I won't bore everyone by citing all the cases in law, New York law, in which well, marriage one. is associated. Cite one. Cite one, Maggie, would you I, please? I, yeah, but I'd have to look up the, new, the uh, copy of the amicus brief. But go ahead and ask another question, and I'll get All right, we're, we're running out of time. I'm going to take two more questions. One back there behind, yes, the third row there, and one down here in the front. Uh, this is a question for uh, Professor Eskridge. With regard to the slippery slope debate or the slippery slope argument, don't you get a different answer uh, depending on whether you have a legislative solution or a court-imposed constitutional solution? Isn't the argument that, um, that, it, uh, that by creating a constitutional right for gay marriage also creates a constitutional right for polygamy got some validity if you if you take it through the through the constitutional means rather than through the um, the legislative means well practically i don't think it makes a difference we've seen same-sex marriage now in massachusetts by judicial decree um, we've seen it in canada by legislation we've seen it in the netherlands by legislation and in none of those places has there been any great hue and cry for polygamy so so far uh, remains uh, to be seen. Here's the second point, and this is a legal point. It depends on what the legal basis for the marriage, same-sex marriage right is. And there are two arguments that are being made, one that's never been successful, and that's there's a fundamental right to marry. And I think one of the reasons the courts have never accepted that argument, not the Hawaii court, not Massachusetts, not Vermont, is they're afraid of that slippery slope, which is exactly what you're saying. Instead, the argument they've always gone off on is is the classification, not is there a fundamental right to marry that polygamists and incestophiles and the cat and Judge Posner might have, but instead is there a classification that's fishy to a certain extent. And, and Maggie is wrong to say or to stop with saying the courts have been applying rational basis review. Justice O'Connor set it forth accurately in Lawrence when she said when personal and um, other rights are involved, when we say rational basis, we're giving it a lot more bite than we do in economic cases. So economic statutes get a laissez-faire uh, pat from the court. Uh, statutes involving family relations and others, the courts will look at more scrutinizingly, which is a different form of rational basis. And in the marriage cases, it's usually been, uh, is the sexual orientation classification a rational basis for denying some group of people marriage licenses and others get them? 
And there, that kind of claim cannot be made by polygamy because the classification for polygamy is numerosity. It's not sexual orientation. It's not race. Remember, there were the leading case, Loving versus Virginia, is mainly a race case, that it can't constitutionally deny different race couples a right that the same race couples have. And the reason was the classification race is very fishy. If we denied people with disabilities the right to marry, uh, as we have in the past, and some states still might, though I think it's preempted by the ADA, uh, that would probably be unconstitutional because disability, at least most forms of disability I can think of, uh, even though they might not make for as good marriages as what Maggie wants us to have, uh, I think uh, those people should not be cordoned off from marriages just because they're disabled. They can have productive relationships of their own. And so the challenge would be not there's a fundamental right to marry, but that you can't use the disability as a criterion for cordoning people off. Now, if that's the argument that's used, that's not an argument available to the polygamists, the incestophiles, or even Judge Posner's cat, assuming the cat even had standing. <laughs> A tough question. Yeah. Okay, right here. Last question. <clears throat> Hi, Adam Barr with the Institute for Responsible Citizenship. Um, this is for both of you. Would either of you um, support a constitutional amendment that expands on the 14th and says that you can't discriminate on people based on their sexual preference or orientation? No. I think the answer to that has to be no, because the 14th Amendment doesn't have race or sex in it already. And I don't think you should add sexual orientation unless you want to think through all the various categories. And there, I don't know what the answer is, what category should be suspicious. I think the courts have actually done an, a fine job of it, as it is in states and the national level. So I guess I'm a no on that one as well. All right. I want to thank Maggie Gallagher and Bill Eskridge for being here. And we thank the Cato Institute for hosting us. Oh, by the way, if you, if you want to uh, buy the book, we have a website. It's www.gaymarriagebook.com. Oh, the copy's out back. Oh, the And there are books out here. Maybe Please join us upstairs. Oh, I didn't sign anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I saw you. I saw you. I saw you. Well, you got a free